calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. The quest for keys continues. It's episode 391 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I loved season two of Netflix's Lock and Key so much. And I mean, I just love the show in general. I thought, why not talk about it once again? This time, we'll talk to a member outside of the Locke family, Genevieve Kang, who plays Jackie on Lock and Key. So if you're a shipper of Tyler and Jackie, then Jackie will talk all about that relationship, about some of the big plot twists that you can expect in Season 2. Gonna go spoiler-free, though. So if you haven't had a chance to catch up or finish Season 2 of Netflix's Lock and Key, Got you covered. Not going to spoil anything for you with my interview with, with, with Genevieve Kang. Also going to be talking to author Rick Riordan about his brand new book, Daughter of the Deep. Rick Riordan, of course, of Rick Riordan Presents, the, the imprint that we've had a couple of the authors on the show before, and this is now his book. We'll talk to him about that and some really interesting info about like some marine biology type influences and Captain Nemo and stuff and get into that shortly. Plenty of reviews to talk about. We've got the 100th episode of Legends of Tomorrow to talk about. Star Trek Prodigy finally premiered. We'll tackle the Netflix movie Hypnotic and so much more. Some nerd news as well. Let's get right to it and get back to Key House. Let's talk to Genevieve Kang about Netflix's Lock and Key Season 2 up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Hi, this is Amelia Jones from Netflix's Lock and Key, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You guys know how excited I've been for season two of Netflix's Lock and Key because I haven't shut up about it since season one. And there's so many great characters to talk to from the show, and I thought to myself, we got to get Jackie on. So that's exactly what we did. Genevieve Kang, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So Genevieve, last season there was like a lot of character introduction, a lot of fans getting familiar with the setting of the show. So did things kind of feel different when filming started for the second season? Pretty different in terms of, because I feel like Jackie very much came in as this character that Tyler was very much getting to know. And so when you find them in season two, it's like some time has passed. And so everyone's just a bit more settled into their roles and things are a bit more established in terms of relationships. So, yeah. And speaking of settled, I mean, obviously the locks, you know, they think they've won. They think they've defeated Dodge. Everything's good now. Everybody's happy. So we're kind of seeing Jackie and Tyler in a really good place to start the season. Am I right? And what's your favorite thing about the relationship? I think what I like about the relationship, it's interesting. It, it just, it's no different than when I think of relationships I've had over the years, but in terms of like Jackie, as much as Jackie is, is very much somebody who wants to see the best in, in people and she's so sweet and warm. She also kind of like has her way of putting Tyler in his place. And I think we see that in the first season in particular. And so I, I think though with Tyler getting more settled and, and, and realizing over the course of the, se- the first season as well, kind of like what he wants and who he wants to be. There's just a nice like back and forth. And I think they just, they complement each other so well in terms of kind of, yeah, calling each other out on their stuff, which we might see a little bit more of in season two, I think even again, in, in the other way, like where, where Tyler's maybe having to confront Jackie with some things as well. So it's a dynamic relationship. We're seeing like a real relationship versus I think because as high school students, we can just see things kind of like one noted on television a lot of the times, but I don't think that's the case with the relationship that our writers have created for them. So It's interesting too, because sometimes I have to pinch myself and remind myself that you guys aren't actually college students, that you're high school students. So, because I, I think that it's, it, it feels a little higher up there. Does it feel that way to you too? Yes, because in high school, I definitely didn't, I don't think I was, I had the, maturity or the charisma or the charm that (laughs) (laughs) but we see that I guess that is something we do see on television a lot is sometimes the characters are a little bit more mature than what is is real yeah I, I still think we do a pretty good job of keeping it grounded in reality but yeah, a little bit. I guess, yeah, it can come off as well, a little You bit. guys got lucky. It's not impossible. There are, there, are, there are pretty mature high school students, so you guys are just a couple of them, that's all. Right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so Jackie certainly warmed up to the idea of the keys in season one, and they could certainly be fun, but, and, and again, we're not going to spoil anything here, but could we actually see the keys maybe present some problems for Jackie and Tyler in their relationship coming up? Yes, possibly. I mean, I think so. Something we do we do explore in in the second season is you know with the prospect of and and it comes up obviously in first season, but with the prospect of Tyler and Jackie reaching their 18th birthdays. And as we know, once you become an adult, you can no longer remember the magic. So there's definitely some exploration there in the second season um, with the keys and and again just in leaving first season and Jackie's obviously been exposed to the magic now she's not freaking out quite the same mm-hmm. so I think there's definitely more of a curiosity there for her about learning how to work with these keys um, as opposed to just resisting the magic so yeah yeah and anybody that saw last season's finale you know what's going on with 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 Gabe and with Eden you know Gabe's dodge and Eden is a demon now and 
you know, here's the thing, though. Jackie's known Eden for, for a little while now, and it, more, certainly longer than any of the locks. So do you think she might actually be the one that kind of starts to realize, okay, something's off with Eden here? Yeah, I think so. It definitely um, comes up in season two uh, because, yeah, Eden, Eden, Eden has a, a pretty big transformation, I think, we'll, as we'll see in season two, and it's, it has been teased a little bit as well in some of the promo. Um, so, so, yeah, it's certainly something that gets brought up between um, Jackie and Eden uh, throughout season two. Talking to Genevieve Kang, who, of course, plays Jackie on Lock and Key, season two of Lock and Key, which is now streaming on Netflix. Genevieve, I've got a favorite episode of this season already. I want to know what your favorite episode of the season has been in season two. Oh my gosh. I know my favorite. I can't even remember what episode it is though. If I had to say the number of episode it is, but I do have, yeah, I, de I definitely have a favorite. I mean, I have a favorite, I think that I enjoyed filming the most. And then I also have like a favorite that is just a favorite overall in terms of the storytelling and, and what's happening to everyone's characters. So well, have yeah. you all gotten to see that finished product yet? Or are you still kind of waiting like the rest of us? No, we, I mean, we, we will see snippets, obviously, when we're making it. We might get mm -hmm. to see a little bit of playback. And and then when we go in and do ADR at the end, you might see a little bit. Um, but I I have not seen anything. I think most of us haven't seen anything. And like, even just in terms of like the trailers and the teasers that come out, we like, we maybe get notified within like hours or 20 yeah 24 hour period of it's like this is coming out tomorrow by the way and so we don't really get to see anything beforehand um so it's just as exciting for us to kind of have the show come out on netflix and to get to watch it very cool very cool so a little bit of behind the curtain stuff on on you you I actually saw you started doing open water swimming not too long ago which yeah. is terrifying <laughs> to me that's like the equivalent of rock climbing with no with no ropes or something ah. that's it's just scary to me. And I love swimming, too, and I think I'm pretty good at it, but that would scare me to death. You're a surfer, too, so I guess those kind of things go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, surfing is, it, to say I'm a surfer is maybe a bit of a, a it's very generous. I, I enjoy surfing. I think it's a lot of fun. I love, I, just, I love being in the water. I love the ocean. That's, like, primarily why I moved to Vancouver. Um, was just to be more to be closer to the beach and to the water and um, yeah this past summer though I took up open water swimming because I, I grew up swimming competitively um, so swimming is is very natural to me but I, I remember I was at the beach one day early in the morning and I saw people going out in wetsuits and just swimming laps and I was like well this is really cool like I, I'm so used to swimming laps in the pool, but if you can do it in the ocean, why not? So I literally went home and Googled open water swimming Vancouver. And then I came across more information and met somebody to basically get a coaching in terms of safety. Cause that's the main thing, obviously. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. The open water is, you know, being aware of, um, well, marine life and then also like boats and that sort of thing. So, but it's fun. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's kind of like a meditation for me and same with surfing, like to be out in the water and to be just getting thrash by the waves it's like you feel like at some moments you feel like you could die but that's also when I feel like that's I feel the most alive it's because you're just like no I'm okay and just gotta swim to the surface and it's um yeah it's exhilarating and lovely <laughs> totally makes sense totally makes sense it got me thinking though I don't recall hearing about Jackie playing any sports or anything like that what do you think she'd be good at as an athlete what do you think because I clearly she could be an athlete yeah, well, actually, in the first season, um, she's on the track team. But it's funny that you say that because it's not like 
emphasize. And so I think a lot of people forget that that's a thing. It's just like, it's mentioned and she's, she, I don't know if you remember, but she planned that 5k race, right? It's like, it's yeah, big. I forgot it was a thing. So I'm Yeah. That's why I said, I didn't recall. Clearly I forgot. So yeah, yeah. It's barely, it's barely like acknowledged. It's not really fleshed out, but it's interesting that you asked because also in, uh, when I was auditioning for the role, it was like emphasizing the breakdown. She's a track star. There was one of the scenes that I auditioned with actually never made it into, I guess, one of the final scripts, but it actually emphasized also her befriending Kinsey a lot more. Like she and Kinsey met on the, the track team. Um, and so I guess they obviously went a different direction in terms of the story and everything, but apparently she's a track star. <laughs> I would like to see more scenes with Kenzie and Jackie, though. I think that I think that's a cool dynamic that could be explored. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I also somewhere saw somewhere though, and I, this made me laugh, and I'm sorry it made me laugh that you're obsessed with Martha Stewart, which I think is which I think is interesting. So I, here, let's take it and let's roll this into the show a little bit. Okay. Would you use the head key on Martha Stewart? Oh my gosh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've been obsessed with Martha Stewart since I was like a little kid. Um, when I was like seven, eight, I used to like, I was, yeah, I'm just obsessed. I watched her show. She had a show called Martha Stewart Living. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. So all, all growing up, I watched, I like religiously watched this show. Um, like, I loved her magazines. Um, yeah, she's, I mean, she's like, in my opinion, she's also like the original influencer. She's just like, of, I guess, homemaking. Um, but yeah, I was pretty obsessed with her and still am, but for a bit, you know, in a different way. Um, and uh, I just, yeah, I find her so fascinating. I, every part of her, even the part where she went to jail. <laughs> it's so, so interesting. It, it didn't even dawn on me about her being like one of the first influencers. That's such a good point. I never really thought about it that way, but you're totally right. Yeah, just, yeah, before social media, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. Now, Genevieve, before I let you go, I was talking to Meredith and Carlton the other day. They actually mentioned you've already finished filming season two, which good news for fans. We're happy about that. That means we might get it sooner. We're not going to talk about that. So actually, how much are you looking forward to fans seeing what happens next? Because you've been there. You know how much are we going to freak out? Uh, I mean, a lot happens in season two. So I think audiences are going to be um, both pleasantly surprised, but also, and just like so satisfied. I think, yeah, from coming off of season one and into season two, we just, the stakes are higher. There's more tension, more conflict, um, more magic. Um, yeah, I think, uh, there's just more of everything. And it's, it's not just about leaving a cliffhanger at the end of the season, but we have cliffhangers like trickled throughout the entire season. So I think, yeah, audience is going to be very happy. Well, you got to get through season two first. So make sure if you haven't already catch up with season one of Lock and Key on Netflix, season two now streaming as well. And we'll see what Jackie's up to throughout the whole season. Genevieve Kang, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And if you've watched season two already, you know that Jackie has some very cool moments on the series. A lot of great moments with Tyler as well, especially in the early episodes. And I mean, just seeing her get into the mix Again, and seeing her part of the story of these keys is just super, super interesting. No, I'm not going to spoil anything. I know you want me to, but you got to watch Netflix's Lock and Key, which is now streaming for season two and season one, if you haven't caught up on that yet as well. Again, thanks to Genevieve Kang for joining me this week to talk about season two of Netflix's Lock and Key. Up next, how about we celebrate the 100th episode of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, my spoiler-filled review next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Hi, this is Tierra Renee, and I play Hot Girl on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The Legends Turn 100, the 100th episode of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, aired this past week on The CW, so I'm going to go ahead and dive in headfirst. Spoiler-filled review here coming up of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, 100th episode, and I kind of like the fact that it was a Gideon-centric episode, because you, of course, know Amy Pemberton is now in the flesh on the series, Gideon is now a person, so Gideon kind of crashes. You know, when you first become a human, you don't really know how to handle a human, so Gideon sort of passes out, and the only way that Spooner and Astra can get her out of that as they search for the legends is to go inside her mind. And it's funny because they use the the, the whole, what gave Gideon her humanity? What made her who she is? And that's how they introduced, uh, well, reintroduced, I should say, all of these characters from DC's Legends of Tomorrow past. Because you look at it and you say, okay, how do they bring back Captain Cold? How do you bring back Fall Kenshaw as Hawkman? How do you do the, those sort of things? So you see all of these different memories. Oh, and by the way, having Franz Drema back as Jax was incredible. I loved the British accent that was there that we know is his actual accent. And he's just like, well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe everything just sounds better British. This is how she decides to remember me. I love. That is such a DC's Legends of Tomorrow way to write that into the show. And I really, really loved that. Now, let's be honest. And I'm not going to go through all these different memories. But it, there are two things that I thought were interesting. Given what DC's Legends of Tomorrow was in its beginning and what it is now, it was almost awkward having Hawkman back and having Captain Cole back in, in that capacity. I loved having Wentworth Miller back as Ca Captain Cole and Falkenshaw back as Hawkman. I loved that because I, I've loved the first couple seasons of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. But it is so much more of a loose and wacky show now than it ever was in those first two seasons, even with Rip Hunter being back. That bringing the, it was almost awkward going back to that place because you almost you tried to make it funnier than it was in that for in those first couple of seasons to fit the theme now and it just seemed like it was a little bit awkward trying to do that because you can't completely go back on what you are now to go because it's a completely different show I've talked about that a, a million times when I talked about DC's Legends of Tomorrow so I thought that that was kind of a a, a weird way to go about doing that. But at the same time, it, it was very good to see those characters back again. And you see those moments that did shape Gideon and by extension shaped the team as well. So that was very, very interesting. The moments that were picked and the fact that Rip Hunter does play a huge role in Gideon becoming who she is. And you see how certain members of the team also feel that way. And then you feel like Gideon's going to lose her humanity because you've got the virus that's in there, right? And and trying to convince her, hey, you know, this is just your programming. You're not actually human. And how she comes out of that, I thought was really, really interesting as well. Now, granted, this was a 100th episode. Was there some fan service in there? Absolutely. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. Because a lot of shows will go clip show in these situations, right? And I'm not saying that that's true of the Arrowverse. Who, by the way, before I get into that, isn't it amazing that your Arrowverse flagship series all made it to at least 100 episodes? Isn't that nuts? Arrow has made it. 
The Flash, Supergirl, now DC's Legends of Tomorrow. The flagship shows all made it to at least 100 episodes. And that is that is incredible and certainly speaks to the success of DC TV. But I want to get back to the whole fan service thing for a second. There's There's nothing wrong with that. Because they found a way to make it work within the story. You know, like having the Bebo doll be a distraction at a certain point, right? Because you have to have Bebo back into the mix. They made it work within the story. Could it be a little cheesy at times? Sure. But that's, again, that's DC's Legends of Tomorrow in a nutshell. That's kind of what they do at times. But they always make it relate back to the larger story at hand. And at this point, Astra and Spooner, they need Gideon, right? And it also gives them an idea of how the legends became the legends that they are now as well. Because, you know, Spooner and Astra, they're the newer members of the group. So now they're understanding how the legends went from who they were in season one to who they are now. And they kind of offhand reference that too. Like, you know, who are these wackos sort of thing in the first when they're sh- when they were showing the scenes of the the legends of the first couple of seasons, so I loved that they were they made that almost like an almost a fourth wall break, but not quite. And you know, having Victor Garber back and having the little musical number with Gideon, I thought that that was really really nice. And again, now you fall back into okay, let's find the legends, and this dude that's trying to corrupt Gideon at this point, to try and take down the legends who kidnapped him and all these other things. And the, the legends just kidnap people to use them for what they need to use them for. But they always put them back, right? You know, it's like you're borrowing something. It's like you're, you're taking something. But yeah, you're going to put it right back when you're done with it. But again, the, the, the legends make enemies because of certain things that they do. And I, only time will tell how interesting that's going to be in future episodes, but focusing on this 100th episode, they celebrated as only DC's Legends of Tomorrow can celebrate. This show certainly kept within the theme of what the show does, and yeah, there were some awkward moments there because of it, the fact that it was a different show in its first couple of seasons than it is now, but it made it work because that's just what DC's Legends of Tomorrow does. This is one of those shows where if you can't just sit back and have fun with it, I feel bad for you. I mean, it, it, that because that's exactly what the show does. doesn't take itself too seriously. You shouldn't either. And that's why I've grown to love this show more than I ever thought I could. And I always said I'm surprised that it lasted this long. But given what it's become and what I see it for, for now, I'm not surprised at all. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the 100th episode of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, which is, of course, airing now on the CW. Up next, going to head to the world of Star Trek and talk about the first Trek animated series in forever. Talk about Star Trek Prodigy, the premiere, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is writer Mike Johnson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to search for a better future in the first Star Wars animated series in decades. Star Trek Prodigy premiered on Paramount Plus this week. I'm going to throw some spoilers into this review. Because I feel like it's important to be able to talk about what's going on. And you know the story. It's about, you know, a group of six ragtag teenagers who are basically looking to explore the galaxy and and search for a better future for themselves and find, you know, a place for themselves to be in this world, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, you know, not a completely unfamiliar theme and certainly not an unfamiliar feeling to some of these characters. From what I saw in the first episode, what I what I didn't expect, though, was that it was kind of dark for an animated series in that's supposed to be basically for kids. Right. You know, certainly not too dark, but darker than I would have expected. You start off on this mining planet with a bunch of prisoners who are clearly being mistreated by these. You know, you've got these random like robots in the field and things like that that are just poking and prodding these prisoners. And the whole first episode, for the most part centers around well first it's in two parts so it's really the first episode it's like an extended premiere type thing on paramount plus so the the almost the entire episode is this search for fugitive zero and you're trying to find out you know who or what zero is and then you've got of course you've got you've got doll who's played by who's voiced by brett gray who is your, you know, he is your hero, basically, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, he's the, he's the charismatic one. He's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, they call him a maverick in the character description that was put out. I think that that's probably, you know, about right. Certainly not unwilling to take risks. Very much a, the hopeful member of this group at the end of the day. And, you know, fancies himself a captain. I'm not sure that, you know, I would go there just yet but again this is a kid that's got a lot of a lot of you know high expectations and dreams for what he wants to do and doesn't know exactly who he is where he came from certain things like that so that that also lends itself to the story a little bit and then you've got Gwen who I think is probably the more most interesting character on the show played by Ella Purnell and you see that she's, you know, on her dad's mining planet. She's, she she sort of has a nice place in the hierarchy there, but she also gets put in her place by her dad a couple of times in this in this show. Dad does seem to have a soft spot for his daughter, which is also very, very interesting. But clearly, you know, she wants more. She's got her eyes to the stars sort of thing. So when she's presented the opportunity, and I use that term very loosely, presented the opportunity to sort of join this group. She sort of does it, even if it's reluctantly. So at the end of this episode, 
but the the heavy in this episode really it's not necessarily her dad it's it's Dreadnought who is played by Jimmy Simpson and that is your basic you know overlord torturer sort of thing right and and Gwen's actually trying to save Dahl from Dreadnought in this episode because they think he knows where Zero is of course he doesn't and all these other things so it, it was just a very interesting dynamic between these characters, and then you start to meet different members of the crew along the way before they end up finding the Starfleet ship and heading off. Now, what's really interesting is that nobody speaks English until they find the Starfleet translator, which I thought was a really, really fun way to get things started. But the the dynamic of the group is is an interesting one. It's certainly a fun group. I could see where especially younger viewers would, would attach themselves to some of these characters. And then you've got, of course, the great D. Bradley Baker, who's, who's voicing Murph, who's just basically the blob. And that's D. Bradley Baker's wheelhouse right there. Just, just these random weird characters that make, you know, the, the most interesting of sounds and, and presentations and things like that. So I, I, I do love that character. Although here's the thing that I'm a little bit concerned about. I feel like maybe this show in the beginning is giving you too many mysteries. And I, again, I use the term mysteries loosely too. You're giving me too many, you're almost giving me too many things that I need to try and figure out in this show. Like, like even you, you've, you've got the, the, the mining planet that, you know, you know, the dad that's Gwen's dad said, you know, if, Hopefully nobody ever finds out what we're really looking for sort of thing. It's like, okay, so then there's that. And then there's the mystery of who X, Y, and Z's parents are. You've also got the, you know, the exploring the unknown, the exploring the galaxy sort of thing. What was that Starfleet ship doing there sort of thing? Of course, you've got, you've got, you know, Janeway who, who appears at the end of this episode is kind of going to be a guide in this situation. There's just a lot of things that you look at. And you go, all right, so I have to figure out the answers to this. You want to make your characters interesting, but at the same time, and you want to make the story interesting too, I just almost feel like there's too much that was presented in this first episode that you're either going to need to remember in future episodes or you're going to need to try and figure out throughout a 10-episode first season. I'm not saying you've got to have all the answers, after those 10 episodes, but there's also a risk there because you don't know if you're going to get any more beyond a first season. So all in all, I thought it was a pretty solid start for Star Trek Prodigy. I certainly think it's a good way to introduce younger viewers to a, to a property like Star Trek. I think that this is a good gateway type show. If I'm being honest, it felt a little bit more Star Warsy than Star Trekky. So I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'll let you decide on that, maybe you totally disagree with me on that. I don't know, but I was kind of expecting it to just be a fun series and maybe be a you know exploration of the week sort of things, you know, almost like a serialized type situation. So I don't know if that's what we're really going to get. I think we'll get some of that, but I also worry that the overreaching, you know, like who Zero really is and why is this, thing? you know, like you see my true form, it will make you go mad. Well, why? That's weird. What they're really looking for in this mining colony. That's also, there's a lot going on here and I'm just worried that it's going to be too much. So I'm curious to see how they're going to be able to balance that 
throughout this first season. But all in all, not too bad of a start for Star Trek Prodigy. I wouldn't say I loved it. Certainly didn't hate it, for sure. I'm middle of the road on this one. is certainly one I think can build as the series goes on, depending on how they manage the focus of the show. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Star Trek Prodigy from Paramount+, Plus, which is now streaming. Up next, how about we go a little bit spooky and talk about Hypnotic, the new Netflix movie. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, it's Jake Manley from Netflix's The Order, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Taking a trip inside of the mind this week with Netflix's brand new movie, Hypnotic. And I'm actually going to go spoiler-free on this. Well, maybe a couple of minor spoilers, just because the movie's been out for a few days now. But it seemed like an interesting horror-thriller Halloween-type pick, so I decided to go ahead and give it a shot. And basically, this is a movie about a woman named Jen, who's played by Kate Siegel, who is looking for, and the description says, looking for self-improvement. So she goes to a renowned hypnotherapist, who's played by Jason Omar, named Dr. Colin Mead, to kind of help her out. And the thing you need to know about Jen is that she's been through a lot in a short amount of time. One very major problem in her life has kind of sent her into a bit, I don't want to say spiral because I don't think she's quite there yet. She's, she seems pretty together, but she's really, really struggling getting through one particular event in her life. And I won't spoil what that is because it's kind of a big moment and it's kind of a big reveal. And I think it wouldn't have as much emotional impact if I tell you what it is and you decide to see this movie. So there's one big event that's, that's caused to a lot of, a lot of grief and a lot of things that happen in her life. So her friend, Lucy, who's played by Lucy Guest, named Gina, says, hey, you should go see my therapist. And you, you, everybody's got a friend that says that to him, right? You should go see my therapist. They're the best. Well, it turns out he's the worst. He is the I mean, and that's not a, that's not a spoiler because you've seen it in the trailer. If you've seen the trailer for this movie, you know that things go south for Jen. And we see that you, you see in the trailer, the first thing, one of the, one of the things you see in the trailer, you remember the most is the spider crawling up Lucy, right? And, and you wonder, you know, how did they get to that point? Here's the thing. This movie deals a lot with hypnotherapy and the concept of hypnotherapy. You can Google it. It's a thing. And you can understand why maybe somebody might be leery of it. And Jen's leery of it in the movie, as a matter of fact, when, when, she, when she's first presented with the idea. But, you know, Dr. Mead, uh, Jason Omar, he's a smooth talker. So he kind of talks her... Into giving it a shot. Now, here's the thing. But before I go too much, I'm not really going to give you again plot for plot, shot for shot here. That's not what I'm here to do. My overall impression of this movie is when I first saw the concept, I thought this is a really cool concept for a horror thriller type movie. And if I'm going to go in the horror genre, this is this is my wheelhouse. I like the thrillers. I like the mix of the two. I think it's really really neat. And this concept really seemed interesting to me. And here's the thing. There's a lot of conveniences early on in how the story is told. And when I say that, I mean certain things that your typical horror movie trope of person X makes a really stupid mistake that results in Y sort of thing. And you're going to see that a lot, especially in the beginning of this movie. Now, here's the thing that kind of baffles me 
is once that's discovered, once that's figured out by the person that needs to figure it out, then you start to see the effects change a little bit. And that's very convenient because this is one of those movies where you're watching and you think, okay, so if you just did this, nothing bad happens and the movie's over. That's my biggest problem with it is that it seems like it could have been over pretty quick. Now, there's a couple things that happen that you go, oh, okay, well, maybe it couldn't have been as over as you thought it was, right? But then you see how certain things evolve with the hypnotherapy and things that Dr. Mead's able to do, and you go, I don't know. And you know, you never want to tug at that thread when you're watching a movie, right? Especially one like this. But you can't help it in your rational mind at the same time, if that makes sense. So that that was my biggest issue with the movie is that yeah some of this stuff's awfully convenient and and how it's re- there's a really convenient part of the resolution of this movie as well there's a few throwaway characters too that that seem like they're going to be important and then you don't really see them a whole lot throughout the movie after a certain point so that that's kind of a bummer I will say one of the things and I and I love Dulé Hill who plays Detective Rollins in this movie. But he's like the worst cop ever in this movie. No no disrespect to Dooley at all. But but this cop is not the best cop. Not at, not at investigation stuff, but just in general of like being able to defend himself and things like that. He's awful at that. And you'll see that when you watch this movie. There's one very brilliant thing that is done in this movie though, and it's and it's part of the end twist that happens something that Jen does that makes you go that is a really smart thing to do if you're in the situation that she's in and it ends up paying off in the end again I hate the fact that I have to do this spoiler free well I'm choosing to do it spoiler free because I don't want I don't want to completely ruin your enjoyment of this movie but there is one really brilliant thing that she does that if she doesn't do this who knows how this movie is going to end so there is one good twist in this movie that I really, really liked. But beyond that, it's not really that terrifying. You could understand why this would certainly be an issue, and it might make you think twice about ever trying hypnotherapy or hypnosis or something like that. It might make you a little leery of it, but... Did I ever really get the sense of of terror? No. You could understand why the characters in the situations that they're in would be terrified. But this movie doesn't scare you. And it wasn't intriguing enough in its plot to really keep my attention. It's one of those ones where I found myself looking at my phone while I was watching it. That's never a good sign, right? Obviously, we're so attached to our phones that you're probably going to look at it once or twice, no matter how interested in something that you are. But I found myself drifting a lot during this movie. Now, it is a brisk pace. It's under 90 minutes. So it, you will get through this one really, really quick. So that, and that is another mark in its favor in that it didn't need to be too long, and it wasn't. And they realized that they it definitely did get right to the point. But at the same time, there there were a couple of plot points that I felt like were really glossed over and pushed to the side that maybe if we'd been given a little bit more depth or maybe some flashback 
to go with it, it would have had a bit more of an impact when certain scenes happened in the movie. So you understand some of the choices they give. And some of the choices that are made in the beginning of the movie might not make sense to you, but they'll make sense towards the end of the movie. You'll go, oh, so that's why he's doing this to her specifically sort of thing. Or that's why this happened. That'll happen a couple times towards the end. If So if you don't get it in the beginning, you'll probably get it in the end. But overall, uh, as much as I hate to admit it because I love I think it's a great cast. I thought it was well acted. I just think it's a forgettable movie, unfortunately. But again, if you're if like if you're a Jason O'Mara fan, to see him in this role is really really cool. You, I think that you you would definitely enjoy it. And there's definitely some good acting performances. Just not a good enough movie to really justify being a, a Netflix favorite. So if you give Hypnotic a shot, let me know. Tweet me. And let me know what you think. At downinery seven five seven. Really interested to see if you agree with some of my spoiler free thoughts on Hypnotic from Netflix. Up next, how about this? What we're reading is back in interview form. I'll talk to Rick Riordan about his brand new book up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer C.S. Pacat, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You know the name from the Percy Jackson series and many other fascinating novels, and he's got a new book out now called Daughter of the Deep. It's Rick Riordan. Rick, how are you today? I'm doing great. You doing well? I'm doing fantastic. Now, when I was a kid, Rick, I grew up with a, a fascination of the deep sea. Just It seems like just like you did. What makes that the perfect dra- backdrop for a story like Daughter of the Deep? Oh, the ocean is an incredible uh, source of mystery, of power. Uh, we, you know, we don't know what's down in the ocean still. 80% of it is unexplored. More people have been to the moon than have been to the bottom of the ocean. So it's a great place to talk about uh, fantasy, to talk about science fiction, I've done that before, of course, with Percy Jackson being the son of the sea god. But the difference with Daughter of the Deep is this is based on marine science. It's based on Jules Verne and his story of Captain Nemo and the Nautilus. Absolutely. It was a great homage, too, as far as I'm concerned. How would you actually describe, let's dive into the story a bit, how would you describe Annette? What makes her such a relatable character for readers? Anna Dakar is a young woman who is just coming into high school. She is wonderful at marine sciences. That's what her school specializes in. She has a natural talent for a lot of things, but she also has a complicated family history. She has an older brother who has sort of been designated as the one who's going to carry on the family tradition, sort of a very traditional family thing where the brother is the one who is the the standard bearer. But in this book, for reasons that become clear, her brother Dev is sidelined, and Anna has to be the one that steps up center stage and takes hold of the family legacy. She is a descendant of Captain Nemo. She is the only one that can unlock his technology, and she has to get up to speed very quickly and learn how to become a new kind of Captain Nemo because her life is on the line and the lives of all her friends. I was going to ask you about that, actually, because she's a she's a freshman. Obviously, family legacy plays into this. There's a lot of pressure on her already. And we really get her to see her thrust into that leadership role at some at one point in the story. Is that something that she's just naturally ready for, you think? Or could we see her make some mistakes along the way, maybe? Oh, no, she's going to make lots of mistakes. And I think, again, that's something that young readers can relate to. We are not all born perfect. We're not good at everything right off the start. We have to fumble along. We have to find our way. And Anna is definitely going to have to step into some very big shoes 
and become a leader among her peers. And yes, she's going to need her friends for that, and she's going to make mistakes that are going to affect not just herself, but uh, the entire world. No doubt about that. Now, you've got a great ensemble cast for this story. Other than Anna, who's your favorite character to write in the story? Mm. Esther Harding is a really interesting character for me. She's autistic, and she has a skill set that complements Anna's and a set of challenges that also complements Anna's. They, they are best friends. They couldn't be more different. But I love the dynamic between them, and I love how two best friends can complement each other and help each other along on an adventure by recognizing their own strengths and weaknesses. And plus, she's just a great, hilarious, fun character uh, who's wonderful with animals. And I have to respect anybody who's good with animals. You and me both, Rick. You and me both. I hear that. (laughs) So you're obviously very well known, like you said, for the Percy Jackson stories. Are there any parallels here in Daughter of the Deep or maybe something that readers of Percy Jackson, you can tell them, okay, hey, if you love Percy, this is why you're going to love Daughter of the Deep as well. Well, for sure, the, the main parallel is the writing style. It is definitely a Rick Riordan book. It has the same humor, the same pacing, the same sense of adventure and fun in this book, as I hope they enjoyed in Percy Jackson and the other books I've written. So that isn't different. The, um, the difference is science versus mythology. But still, we're dealing with young heroes who have great skills but also great challenges. And so I think that if you enjoyed Percy Jackson... Um, you will certainly enjoy Daughter of the Deep. Um, But hopefully uh, come away just as interested in the marine sciences and the wonders of the ocean as the readers were for Greek mythology. When you go more from Greek mythology to marine sciences, when you're talking about actual, actual science and not mythology, is there a different approach to that or is there a different level of research that you do to approach a book like this as opposed to a Percy Jackson? Oh, for sure. Uh, I didn't know much about the marine sciences, and it's been really about 15 years since I first got the idea for Daughter of the Deep. And in that time, I was researching a lot. I was reading about submarines and naval history and the marine sciences, and I was also doing hands-on research. We took a lot of boat trips all around the world. I became certified in scuba diving. I have now dived in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, even in Iceland. So I got a sense up close and personal of what it's like under the ocean. And I'm very glad I did because it's a different world. And I needed that experience to be able to relate what Anna and her friends are dealing with as they go under the water. Sounds like you had a heck of a lot of fun, Rick. So that's pretty awesome. (laughs) That's really, really great. that too, yes. So speaking of Percy Jackson, how excited are you for Percy Jackson, the Olympians, that story to come back to Disney Plus as a series? We are really looking forward to it. It's been a long road. It's been a lot of complex negotiation, finding the right team and getting the right approach. But I am optimistic that we are on the right track now. If all goes well, the uh, series should start filming this summer, which would mean that It should be on Disney Plus, again, fingers crossed, in 2023. So stay tuned. That's definitely good news, Rick. So, uh, of course, you've written many novels yourself, but I've also spoken to quite a few authors under the Rick Riordan Riordan Presents imprint. So how do you all go about choosing which kinds of stories and even which kinds of authors that you publish under that banner? Of course, because it's got your name on it, so I know you're only going to want to pick the best. Well, that's true. It really depends on who we think is um, has got the best pitch for a great story, who has good sample chapters, 
and who's covering a world mythology that maybe we haven't seen before. The the uh, sort of the, the inspiration for that imprint came from young readers who were asking me if I would ever write about, I don't know, Chinese mythology or West African mythologies or what have you. And I just didn't feel like I was the best person to do that because I didn't grow up with those stories the way I did with Greek mythology, and I wasn't an expert. Uh, so I thought, surely there are other writers out there who know this tradition from the inside, who are looking to tell great stories for young readers based on the mythologies they grew up with. And it's been a tremendous success. There are, in fact, a wonderful a group of um, writers out there who have told these stories, and the, the imprint has just succeeded beyond my wildest expectation. It certainly has done that for a lot of people, too. Now, Rick, before I let you go, you've tackled so many stories from different mythologies. You've taken us into the deep sea now, but I'm sure you're far from done creating great stories. So give us a little tease. What's next for you? Well, I just had a story come out in an uh, imprint anthology, which was about Irish mythology, which I love, and I hope to do more with that. Also coming up, the next book will be back in Percy Jackson's world, but about Nico D'Angelo, the son of Hades, who is one of the fan favorites. Uh, and that is the first book that I have co-written. I have brought in a partner, Marco Shiro, who's really, really amazingly talented, and we're having a blast rediscovering that character together. People love spinoffs, Rick. That's a great call on your part. Excellent. Can't wait to read that one. <laughs> but you can read right now, Daughter of the Deep, available right now from Disney Hyperion. It is the great Rick Riordan. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jim. And if you're like me, you think of the deep scene, you think of all the possibilities there, story-wise, that you could tell. And then you bring a great mind and a great author like Rick Riordan into the mix, and you get Daughter of the Deep. If you have a young reader in your life you want to enjoy a novel with, this would be a great, great choice. Daughter of the Deep, now available wherever books are sold. I actually saw it in Target. The other day when I was shopping, so it's it's available wherever books are sold right now from Rick Riordan. And again, thanks to Rick for joining me this week to talk about Daughter of the Deep and so much more. Up next, there's still nerd news to talk about, so we'll do that. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Another fan favorite is headed to Gotham. It's time for nerd news. And this reported earlier in the week from Deadline that Brendan Fraser has been cast in the upcoming Batgirl movie that is going to be on HBO Max. Of course, Leslie Grace starring as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl in the movie. Now, here's the deal. Depending on what report you look at, is to who Brendan Fraser is going to play. And this none of this is confirmed yet, by the way. A lot of the reports are saying Firefly is the character that's going to be the main villain for this movie. That's who Frazier's going to play. There are some that are saying Carmine Falcone, and that's, I guess, a possibility for a main villain for this movie. But if I'm being honest, I feel like Firefly makes a little bit more sense for this than Falcone. I'm just not sure that Falcone would be a necessary enemy here in this first Batgirl movie. And that just seems like an odd turn to take for a Batgirl movie as well. Plus, I mean, if if you go back to the comics, you do a little digging, you know that Firefly has taken on Batgirl before the Ted Carson version of Firefly. Anyway, that was, you know, fast forward. And this was in the new 52 that was defeated by Batgirl in Nightwing. So 
think about that for a second. I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be the Ted Carson version. It just seems to make a little bit more sense that that's what's going to happen. It certainly makes more sense than Falcone because, I mean, think about it. Back, a young Batgirl against Carmine Falcone. I'm not saying that Batgirl couldn't take Falcone. Quite the opposite. I feel like Batgirl would take care of business against Carmine Falcone. Plus, Batgirl against the mob especially young Batgirl, just doesn't feel right, right? Like, it doesn't feel like the kind of vibe that you want to create in this first Batgirl movie, or at least I don't think you do anyway, right? I say first one. I I really hope that this turns into multiple movies or a series or something like that, or her joining the DC movie universe at some point in some capacity. You know that J.K. Simmons is going to be playing Dad in this, going to be playing Commissioner Gordon, so that's that's cool, too, right? We've also got Jacob Sapio, who is going to be in this as well. We don't know as who yet again, but it, I'm just I think it's interesting that we didn't find out about any of this at DC Fandom. It's almost like you know, was it not finalized yet or or what? But again, I I think Firefly is a is a good way to go. Because Firefly is a legit villain, too, by the way, and a, and a cool villain. We saw the villain on the Gotham series not too long ago as well. So it's not like the fans are unfamiliar with the character or anything. So I, I think that would be a good way to go. I think that, you know, Brendan Fraser could certainly handle that role as well. I just don't see Brendan Fraser's Carmine Falcone either, you know? And he, I love Brendan Fraser. He could play whoever, whenever. And I'm there for it. But at the same time, him as Falcone, eh, I don't know that that's the right way to go. And I feel like he could add something more to a character like Firefly. I mean, look at him as, as Robot Man on, on Doom Patrol. He's perfect in that role, right? So bring a little bit of that to a Firefly role. I'm not saying that you want to play Firefly like Cliff Steele. But certainly I feel like if you're looking for a match and you're you're deciding between Firefly and Falcone, I, I think you pick Firefly in this instance. So I'm just hey, I'm just happy that Brendan Fraser is gonna be in this movie at all. And I totally get the love fest between him and fans lately because I think Brendan Fraser has never gotten enough credit for how many great roles he's really had over the course of the years. How about we dive into some trailers now? We'll start with the Cowboy Bebop trailer, which was revealed by Netflix. The first full trailer is out. November the 19th is the release date for this live-action adaptation of the much-beloved anime series. And I just want to throw this out there right now. There are some fans that are not going to even give this live-action version a chance because of the love of the anime series. And I think it's interesting that we've seen several videos released now of side-by-side shots of, well, here's what it looked like in the anime. Here's how we did it in live action. And you're making it look like you've ripped things right from the anime and put it into the live action series, which they have and which you have to do to a certain extent. But does anybody want that? Whether you're a fan of the original anime or not, do you just want a live action version of the same thing that you've already seen? I don't think you do. So... I, I get the love for the original anime series. I really, really do. But don't you want something that's a little bit different? Don't you want something that's a little bit more? Or a little bit, you know, of a different type of story than you've already seen? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Especially if the story is told well. 
And, you know, Spike Spiegel, John Cho's character, it looks like we might get a little bit of an insight into into his the mystery of his origin, for lack of a better way of putting it. So that there, there's certainly going to be a lot of a, a lot of focus there, I think. But just the focus on having fun with this thing and integrating the music, which I feel like they've done very, very well in this trailer and just the initial team up that we're seeing in this as well and seeing these characters sort of come together i think is really is going to be really really fun and just how the dynamic is i mean just the way you see in this trailer the dynamic between spike and jet black and faye valentine is just really really fun and i think that that's something to be focused on more than anything else, really. And maybe I'm naive in that. And and maybe that... But I don't think that letting your fandom of something cloud something that could be really new and could be really fun, I don't see how that's beneficial. I just think that there's going to be a ton of amazing action in this. It's got a futuristic vibe, yet feels very, you know, like 70s, at the same time in, in, in its presentation as well. And it just, it's funky, it's weird, but it, it's got this cool vibe to it. And it's something that, quite frankly, I feel like could go on for a long, long time if done well. And how this dynamic's going to change now that these, you know, now that this team has met each other and they're still, you know, not quite a team yeah, you know, I'm well. I mean, obviously, Spike and, and Jet Black more of a team than than when than when Faye comes into the mix. But how they're going to gel together and what their ultimate goal is going to be in this first season and how that's going to shape them in future seasons should they get them, and I think that they certainly will. I, I just think that this trailer shows how fun this show is going to be, and I don't think that you should not give it a chance just because of something. That you loved before. Because quite frankly the anime is always going to be there. If you want to go back and watch that. Or campaign for more episodes of the anime. Then knock yourself out. But don't just completely write off this live action series just because of that. And you also have the option of not watching the live action series if you don't want to. But just keep in mind you could be missing out on something really cool and really fun. From characters that you already love in the first place. I also can't wait to see how people are going to be triggered by this Masters of the Universe part, Revelation Part 2 trailer. By the way, that coming back on November the 23rd to Netflix. Because let's put, let's face it, no show has triggered more fans than this one over the past year. Masters of the Universe Revelation. Oh, there's not enough He-Man. Oh, there's not, there's not enough Skeletor. Oh, you're just going to make this whole thing about Teela? That's stupid. Oh, come on. Come on. Again, this is one of those instances where it's masters of the universe. It's not just all about He-Man. It's not just all about Skeletor. Quite frankly, peeling the onion on characters like Evil Lynn and things like that, I thought were pretty pretty interesting. Plus, you give me you finally giving me Scareglow. Can't argue with that. We see a lot of Scareglow in this second in this trailer for part two, and you see that you know Skeletor is holding all the, all the cards. And you remember what Kevin Smith told me. In the interview that we had before the first season, before part one even aired, he's like, Mark Hamill's going to chew scenery in this 
second part. So there's going to be a lot of Skeletor in part two from what we're being teased. And what we're also being teased is this epic battle between He-Man and Skeletor that we're finally going to get in this second part. But here's the thing that in the trailer that I think is going to trigger people. And that is that you see Adam say, you know, the sword was just the conduit. It was, uh, you know, I, it, I always had the power sort of thing. I, I'm paraphrasing here. And you see him reach his hand up in the air, says the famous line, and then turns into savage He-Man, which first of all, I have no problem with. I think that that's a cool concept. But at the same time, this is the sword of power is one of the more famous swords in nerddom, is it not? And now you're saying that he never needed the sword in the first place. I do think that's going to potentially upset people. But but then it's but then you also bring in the argument of, well, do you love He-Man or not? Because what's more badass than He-Man not really needing the sword? That it was always him, not the sword, that had the power, that was chosen to have said power. I think that's an interesting angle to play up. And how and why is that? Now, again, you're making Tila a little more powerful, too, because you're you're basically making Tila a sorceress. And she seems to be the reason that Adam even comes to back to life in the first place, if you tease that in the trailer. So if you were upset that Tila had a huge role in the first place, you're really going to be upset because it looks like that's going to continue into this second part. The only criticism I have of this trailer is that you kind of overuse the I'm going to hit you with my sword and I'm going to cut you, but then no, I'm going to grab your sword and it's going to be no effect. It's like a no-sell in wrestling, right? Where you try and hit somebody with the sword and they just grab it. And, well, now when Skeletor smashes the man of arms, man of arms sword, that was a cool moment. But then when Scareclaw does it, Scareclaw does it to Rangor's, King, King Randor's sword later on, it's like, okay, we've done, we've done this already. So why are we doing this again? So that's my that's my only criticism of the trailer. But are we getting an an Orco resurrection as well? Because that's kind of what I heard at the end of this trailer, and I'd be all about that. But again, let's just relax and see where this goes, okay? I mean, could it end up being a mess? Sure, but I I actually trust Kevin Smith in this, and I know you you might not because of what you saw in the first part. But I think that what he's trying to do is open the story up so much more for so many more of the characters that have always deserved it, quite frankly. So again, let's see how this thing shakes out in a few weeks. I also want to talk about Lightyear really quickly, which is the Buzz Lightyear prequel movie, which is going to be coming from Disney next year on June the 17th of 2022. And yes, Chris Evans going to be voicing Buzz Lightyear in this particular movie. And I have to say, now, this is, you know, of course, the man who inspires the toy who goes on to be in Toy Story. So I think it's interesting that we you don't even hear Buzz Lightyear speak until like the end of the trailer. It's almost like they know, OK, we've changed the voice of the character. That's going to be a problem for some people. So let's just not even have him speak until almost the end of the, tra- of, the of the teaser trailer. Now, do we get a whole lot here? Not necessarily. You could see Buzz take off. And, you know, head into space for what we assume is the first time, right? Or one of the first times sort of thing. You don't really get where this movie's going to go. You don't really get fully what it's going to be about or, or anything like that. 
And of course, you're thinking maybe there's going to be that cheesy, you know, end credit scene about him becoming a toy sort of thing. I, you know, that's that's certainly a possibility of something that we could see. Do we need to see that? I don't think so. Not in this particular instance. I think you just make it about what it is. And that is this character and, and why he became so important in the first place. But, you know, Buzz Lightyear with hair did throw me off. I'll be honest. Buzz Lightyear with hair definitely threw me off. But, you know, it just goes to show you, hey, he was a good-looking guy. He had a, he had a nice full, full head of hair. Now, he doesn't necessarily, although we don't know that he doesn't, I guess, right? But I think that this is one of those prequel-type stories that you can tell. And I, I understand being leery prequels, but going back and telling this story, I think will be really, really fun. And the animation style is night and day different, which I also think is really, really interesting with the updated technology and animation. So I'll be interested to see how, how much of a role that plays as well. Speaking of Disney, really quickly, I want to sneak this in here. National Treasure coming back as a Disney Plus series. And according to Deadline, they found their lead, and it's going to be Lizette Alexis, who's going to play the role of Jess. She's a Latina, and this is right from the, the story, by the way, the Deadline story. A Latina who's brilliant, resourceful, resourceful mind, loves a good mystery, and she has a natural talent for solving puzzles. Now, we're going to see throughout the show, she's going to she's going to uncover some stuff about her own past and her parents, and there's also a connection to a long-lost treasure. And therein lies your national treasure story. Now, according to the press release, this is going to serve as kind of a passing of the torch to this new character of Jess from the Benjamin Gates character who was played famously in the movie by Nick Cage. And Jerry Bruckheimer is back on board to produce this thing. It's going to be directed by John Turtletob, and the writers are going to be Marianne and Cormac Wibberly. So, here's the deal. I'm all about bringing National Treasure back. I'm all about freshening up the story. I am all about bringing in a brand new character to pass the torch to. But again, you got to wait until you get a first trailer. The, the, the synopsis looks good to me. It seems very National Treasure. Ask how historically based this is going to be is very important to me. I don't know how important it is to you, but bringing history into this, I think, is really, really important. I think, you know, bringing some maybe more more deep cut history, I think, could be a little bit of fun. You know, history that don't, we don't necessarily know enough about and probably should, I think, would be an interesting thing to do. In, in 2021, so let well maybe this will probably probably not be out in 2022. So I'll say that, but yeah, National Treasure is a Disney Plus series. Freaking sign me up for that a million times over. So yes, let's do that. And this is certainly one that I'll keep my eye on, and we'll talk about again in the future. That's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my great guests Genevieve Kang and Rick Riordan for joining me this week. Always find out more about what we've got going on at downandnerdypodcast.com. Also on social media, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, and at downandnerdy on what is right now, still Facebook, maybe meta at some point. I don't know how that's going to work out. And yeah, just keep an eye on it. The whole thing is weird. But anyway, remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. 
Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 